HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Bob's Red Mill believes in baking, breakfast, and the pursuit of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the membership coordinator at Heritage Radio Network, but even before I joined the team, I loved listening to HRN during my subway commute. It made the time go quickly and left me feeling inspired for the day ahead. HRN listeners tune in from all over the world, but there are a few traits that we all have in common, no matter where we listen from. A curious palate, the fierceness to make a difference, and a hunger for lifelong learning about the culinary world. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported nonprofit. To deliver the most ambitious, entertaining, and of-the-moment stories in 2018, we need your help. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to accomplish these goals and to keep your favorite shows on the air. Together, we can make this HRN's most exciting, impactful, and delicious year yet. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate, and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to HRN events, where you will mix and mingle with your favorite hosts. Memberships also make a perfect holiday gift for all the foodies in your life. This year, why not give the gift of food radio? You'll hear your generosity in action for the year to come. Help keep our lights on and our mics hot by pledging your support today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Food Without Borders, a show about food, politics, and identity. I am your host, Sari Kamen. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And tonight I'm in studio with my guest, Hawa Hassan. Hawa is a Somali-born former model turned entrepreneur. She's the founder and CEO of Bas Bas, the only authentic packaged Somali line of hot sauces and chutneys currently available in the United States. Welcome to the show, Hawa. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for coming. I'm so excited to have you here. You have such a fascinating story. You've 
done so much with your your very young life at this point. I'm I'm very excited to dig in. So, if you don't mind, um, let's do it. Um, so first of all, you were you were born in Somalia, and your family fled to a refugee camp in Kenya. Um, when was that? I mean, were you just a baby, or, or about how old were you? Were were you when that happened? Um, it was 1991. I think I was four. Do you do you have any recollection of living in Somalia or leaving Somalia at that point before you went to Kenya? I do. Um, I have fond memories of weekends at my grandfather's house um, in the country. I have fond memories of my mom making tea all the time for the neighbors. Um, my dad going to work. My dad was uh, a real estate owner. He was in the real estate business in Mogadishu. And so I have very fond memories of my brother and I playing all the time, um, going to the country to visit my grandmothers in the summers, my parents traveling to Egypt and India all the time. And um, yeah, I, I, I have big memories of Mogadishu mm. and my life there. Yeah. Do you remember having to leave it? I do. I remember the exact night we left. Um, my dad showed up. <laughs> it's actually a kind of a joke in our family now, but my my father had arranged for us to leave um, about a week before the war broke out, the Civil War broke out, um, and before our president at the time was assassinated. Hmm. And so my dad showed up with a woman in the car who was pregnant, and my mom was pregnant with her fifth child. Um, so we all ended up traveling together to Kenya. And so it's a story that gets told over and over. Even if I want to, wanted to forget, we talk about it so much in my family, like the night that we left, because um, it was also the end of my parents <laughs> together. Uh, so we got to... Nairobi and my mom decided because she was going to part ways with my father that she wasn't going to stay. Um, she was parting ways because of entering the refugee camp or for different reasons? Because he showed up with another person oh, and a whole life. I'm and sorry. So, okay. Right. Um, we were, you know, she just wanted to start all over and she thought a good way of doing that was going to a ah, refugee camp. I didn't realize the woman was a woman that he was oh, yeah. leaving another part. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the war kind of like brought a lot, a lot to the forefront for my parents because it was very obvious that my mom had no clue um, that her her husband and a different life he'd created for himself, and then the war, and then packing up and leaving, and so um, that was probably the only reason why we went to the refugee camp because we didn't need. My dad was, had accommodations figured out for us, but. Oh. My, since they were separating. Okay, so it was one week before the war started. Yep. That you anticipated that the war was going to start. Was, oh yeah, there right. was already a civil unrest happening. Okay. Um, you would hear gunshots at night. You would. There were all kinds of talks about tribal um, unrest. So, you know, my parents knew what was coming. It must have been terrifying. Um. You know, I look back and sometimes I think to myself, I felt safe because I had my parents and I had my big brother and I had a little sister, um, two little sisters at the time. And so we'd had this like very sheltered life. Um, and 
Did you understand what was happening, or were you sort of too young to process it all? Not at all. I, okay. I, I, I think I've talked about this before, but I feel like anytime something like that has happened, um, which is it's happened a few times in my life where I had to start over or I had to start over with my family, it's always felt like we were embarking on an adventure. Mm. Um, your parents must, or your mom at least, must have done a really good job of kind of creating like a, a myth to present to you so that there was a positive spin. So it did feel like exciting. Yeah, my my mom has always been like the whole for her community in terms of like being the center. Like her home has always been the place where people come to gather or even in the refugee camp, like our little space was the place where people talked and exchanged ideas and mm. she started a store there. And so my, my mom is always where, wherever we've gone, she's kind of made it very normal like if that makes sense um yeah so I, I i i always talk about my mom but i feel incredibly fortunate to have been born to her because she's just put a positive spin on everything i mean i can't even imagine what your mom must have been experiencing at that time like having to start a new life for for both of those reasons for having to go to a refugee camp with her young children and then realizing that her husband was no longer going to be part of that support system. I mean, that just seems almost too much to bear. I know. So the fact that she was able to, to stay positive and, and create like a safe space for you is, I mean, it's, I, I can't even imagine what that must have been like. Yeah. I, you, you know, it's funny because um, my sisters and I have recently, now that we've become women and some, one of my sisters has children and um, we always talk about the experience maybe the trauma that our mother has experienced and sheltered us from and how often she's had to restart um, her life over. And spe- I mean, I, she was younger than me when she had to start over um, with, you know, children in tow and um, new country and new language. And every time she's done it with such grace, but we were the other day, we were actually on the phone and we were talking about how maybe our mother has never unpacked that trauma Mm. and what that must be like for her. And, um, I'm, I'm 31 now. And so my sisters and I are always trying to figure out ways to get our mother to talk about, you know, to fill in some of the gaps, like what it must've been like for her, but still she has this attitude of like, attitude of gratitude and she's always like mm. you know we've yeah. survived we're alive <laughs> well maybe she just doesn't want to burden you with it and your sisters yeah I mean I hope that there's other resources for her or those other people that she feels more comfortable kind of devol- divulging so that information to yeah I hope so too she's she's a pillar of strength for for us for sure yeah clearly I mean you mentioned she started a store in the refugee camp I mean I would love to hear a little bit about what your memories of being in that camp like what was that like um honestly it felt like a lot of people that were displaced Mm -hmm. had come together it wasn't for me it didn't feel like we were lacking anything I and when I think back sometimes I think about how you know people weren't poor they were just displaced like it was the start of this civil unrest in Somalia it you know we we were a very new country we just gotten our independence in 1960 so we were about what like 23 years old or you know like 20 almost 30 years old when this happened um, as a nation. And so we were on the brink of thriving in terms of like um, 
Somalia was just starting to become acknowledged in the UN and like we were creating all these different partnerships for ourselves and so the refugee camp kind of felt like a big family there were it felt the same as it did back home where you know people were always coming over for tea was it all people, Somalis or people from all over Africa at the time I only knew of only Somalis um uh in our camp and so my mom I think when she got the idea of selling things out of the area we were living in, she just kept thinking to herself, you know, these people aren't poor, they're just displaced. So she started selling things that we needed every day, toiletry, rice. Um, Where would she get the supplies she, from? She would, go, she would go to the city. <sighs> she would go to the city and she would refill as she needed. And so at that point, my job became to take care of my sisters, um, to boil water, um, to watch over things, I it just. But my brother, bless his heart, you know, he overnight became the man of the house, right. and so we leaned and we leaned. I leaned on him a lot, and he's only a few years older than me, so. Yeah, it sounds like you were all leaning on each other. Like you all had your own sort of designated responsibilities. Yeah, but I'm not surprised that you know you eventually like grew up and became a, like an entrepreneur. You know, to hear that your mom was so resourceful in that way. Yeah, she's still like that. She's she lives in Norway now. They live in Oslo. Everyone lives in Nor surprisingly, they live between Oslo and Nairobi. Um, but they're all European citizens and all your siblings? Uh-huh. Everybody she's had five more children in Oslo. She remarried and had five more kids with someone else, but So she's she, had ten kids. She's got ten kids. <laughs> And Talk about a, a pillar of strength. Yes, and she's still super young at heart and travels everywhere, and she has businesses that are thriving. And again, she's become the center of her community in Oslo, and um, I'm just so proud of her. Yeah, she she's, is a force. She really is. That's amazing. <sighs> Did you ever see your dad again? I've not seen my dad um maybe since 2009. So you did see him? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I know that when you were seven and you were living in that refugee camp with your mom and your sisters, uh, your mother sent you to Seattle to live with a family friend. There was an opportunity for you to, to, to start over in the United States and see what opportunity presented itself for you. What was it like to have to leave your family behind, and what was it like to start over in the U.S.? Um, again, I thought, oh, my mom's going to be right behind mm. me. It's going to be only a few months. Um, big adventure. I was like, okay, like yeah. we're going to go to. I'm going to go to Seattle, and um, I'll I'll learn English while I wait for them, and. Then they they didn't come, and I think that took me like two years to process that they weren't coming. Um, and by the time that that like I fully settled into my new reality, I started aligning myself with you know American friends at school and teachers and basketball coaches and um, you know I've been here now maybe 25, 26 years. My mother still hasn't been to America, mm. um, so did she? Was she trying to come or was it just understood that, you know, this was, there was an opportunity for you and not really the rest of the family? 
No, I think originally she believed that if I took the sponsorship and came, that she would have an easier time getting one, you know, one less family member. So it would have been five of them at the time instead of six of us mm-hmm. um, with my mother, my mother included. And so she she'd hoped to come. They kept applying. She kept getting denied. Um, and as you know, the universe would have it. She got um, she got her documents approved in 2007. By then, they'd been living in Oslo for about 17 years. Yeah, you know, a little too little too late. A little too late. Yeah. Um, or a little bit, little less than 17 years. But wow. so you know, stuff like that. Like, imagine if my mom had spent all that time in Kenya. Like, our the dynamic of my family would be so different. Mm-hmm. Um, she now has, you know, again, like, kids that she's had in Oslo. She, she has a whole new life now. She has a whole new life. She's Norwegian. Right. In so many ways, she's so Norwegian, right. and so are my siblings. And the way that you're American. Yeah. So I can't imagine if they had stayed behind and, you know, whether it was, like, live in Nairobi and start over as Kenyans. Um, but I know for sure now that they've had so many more opportunities because they were able to go to Norway and start over. Right. So when when were you able to eventually reconnect with her? When did you see her again? In uh, November of 2008. Mm-hmm. I, I was modeling in New York at the time, and I was living in Ljubljana in Slovenia. Um, I was going between Ljubljana and New York City, and um, I thought, okay, I'm so close to my mom. I have to go and see her. And so... November, that Thanksgiving was my first time seeing them after 15 years of being apart. <laughs> what was that like, if there's, if there's any words that can even be found for that moment? Um, I think it was an emotional time for all of us. Yeah. <laughs> it was so interesting to see people who looked like me. I mean, my little sisters are my twins, and so people who look like me, people who talk like me, people who were, I, for many years, I was like, I'm so loud. Like I'd be, you know, on the phone with my friends and I'm like, why am I so loud? I'd be at their homes. I'm like, why am I so loud? And being around my family, I was like, oh, I belong, yeah. I belong to this tribe. They right. are loud people. Yeah. Um, hundred people. Yeah. And so it, it was really nice. I mean, I feel like my life became full then Mm. I there was this part of me that was missing and when I was able to see my mom and my siblings it felt like okay I know where I belong I know who I am and I think I was searching for that for a very long time were you in touch with them throughout this whole long I don't know over a decade I mean were you able to speak with them yeah, we spoke on the phone over the mm-hmm. years. When they relocated to Norway, I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom would send gifts with people sometimes when she knew that they'd be coming from uh, Kenya to Seattle. Um, there were a few years where I think I was probably resentful, and so we lost touch. Um, but then we reconnected again when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, my my... <laughs> My my mom has been so relentless in terms of making sure that I was always okay and that I always knew I was loved. Um, and I think that has come with me into my adulthood. Like we, my friends and I often talk about how sometimes trauma can break you or it can you know it could strengthen you. And my mom's always been she's 
you know, she's called over the years, and I've never felt not loved or wanted or um, supported. And that's because of how, you know, resilient she's been in terms of making sure that I knew I was her daughter. Yeah. But I can understand how it would be confusing, you know, at a certain point in your life, like as a young person, like a teenager, you know, to... To find yourself in a country without your family, it must have been difficult to sort of reconcile the reasoning behind that. Yeah, there there was a lot of times where I was confused, um, and I was, I just didn't know why, right. you know? But yeah. then when I would reason with myself or when I would sit down I and, you know, sometimes I would write it down, like the pros and cons mm-hmm. of, yeah, that's smart. you know, what happened and what I was grateful That's for. That's so logical of you. <laughs> I'm not always the most logical person, but you know, when you're when you're 13 years old and like you're figuring out lunch money for the next two weeks and you know things that I, you know when I think about a childhood, like now that I'm an adult, I think back and I'm like, oh, I I didn't have a childhood, and so. I think some what really got me through was just being able to like look at things for what they were and understand it was because of the circumstances and not because my mom thought one less child was a better idea. Sure. Um, yeah. But pr- not an easy thing to do as a teenager, I would think. Yeah. Uh, you have said that when you and your mother reunited, you discovered your shared love of cooking. So how did that discovery come about? And then how had you each kind of separately cultivated a love of food and, and pursued your sort of like path towards mm. food as a career? Um, so my mom isn't in the food business. I think she she owns a restaurant with some people in Oslo, but she's not. You won't find my mom cooking a lot, but she's a dictator in the kitchen. <laughs> so you will find her screaming um, instructions. Um, <laughs> that sounds scary. <laughs> so when I, food is a big part of our family. We all sit down together and we eat together. And oftentimes the meal is made by like three or four different people. Um, and so when I got to Norway, it was Thanksgiving. It was a few days before Thanksgiving. And I kept telling my mom about this American holiday. I was like, yeah. And they sit down too and they eat and, um, so we try to recreate a Somali Thanksgiving while I was there just to make me feel comfortable. Um, and I think what I what I realized by being around my mother was that she, till today, she doesn't have a lot of time. But in the mornings was a time I could catch her while she was doing her face mask and making breakfast for my younger siblings. And so that's where that really started was just a desire to be around her more and so we started making breakfast together um and then I I would go back and visit and I would tell my mom all the time about business ideas and she she never got it she was like I don't understand this green juice business that you want to do <laughs> I what you want a coffee shop what um and so in 2014 when I was there I told her it was during Ramadan and I wasn't fasting, but they were. And so she had me cooking and she was shouting instructions. <laughs> so I told her about the sauce business and she thought that was a really good idea. And, wow. you know, till today, my mom still tries to tell me how to make the sauces. And I'm like, Mom, other people make them now. Right. <laughs> um, and so it's brought us closer. Yeah. Um, 
I hope that answers your question. I mean, I, I wanted to bond with my mother and I wanted to have healthier conversations about what it meant to be Somali. And I think my mother and I even talking every day or sending photos of each other back and forth or her at work, me at work, um, that has really strengthened our relationship and has made me, you know, want to make her proud. Yeah. I think it makes sense that food would be sort of this common denominator between you and your mom because, mm-hmm. you know, you both, you had... Somalia, you had that together when mm-hmm. you were a family, and then that was disrupted. And then you ended up coming to the United States, and she went to Norway, and there was so much time where you weren't together, and you became an American, like you said, and she became a Norwegian. So for you to kind of come back together and find, you know, like the common ground, like food is such a, like an accessible place because yeah. you both have the memories of being in this country together, and you have smells and tastes and like that language of food is it's our love language exactly and it's so you know it's so visceral so I understand how that was sort of like the the first easiest place for you to go to and like find find a path towards coming together and it's really an easy way for the two of us to talk because I don't write in Somali my mother doesn't write in English Um, there's so many over the years, there have been so many barriers between the two of us. So for her and I, it's the way we communicate. It's how we spend time together. Um, and it's just how we come up with new ideas, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's it's been nice. It's been fun to watch our relationship develop over just our love of Somali food. Mm. Sounds good. <laughs> uh, we're going to take a quick break. Okay. We'll be right back. We'll, we'll hear more from Hawa, and we're going to talk about her hot sauces. Boss, boss. <laughs> I'm Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene and Modernist Breadcrumbs on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here at Bob's Red Mill to find out from Bob himself why his products taste so good. So what's the secret, Bob? To make the best whole grain flour, we look back in time. No modern technology can match the old world engineering of a stone mill. Wow. Bob's Red Mill is using stone mills? How old are we talking here? Well... The stone mills are practically as old as mankind, and no matter what civilization they uncover, they find two stones that people were rubbing together to make uh, something they could eat, whole wheat flour. But the stones that we use are quarried near Paris, France, in La Ferte, and it's the same stone material from the same quarry that the uh, Romans used to make stone mills all over the Roman Empire of which you can testify by looking at at uh, Pompeii. It's a quartz material. It has a uniqueness about it. It's very hard. It has a certain porosity. And they put the stones together in a unit of 20 pieces and band it so that they use only the best and, and sharpest parts. It's an ingenious thing, but very old. I mean, thousands of years old. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Those sound like some really special stones. How do they work? Stones turning either the top or the bottom stone, turning at 100 to 125 revolutions per minute, 
produce a lovely three, four, up to 500 pounds, depends on the, how, how soft the grain is. The bottom stone is the bedstone, and it's also called the nether stone in the Bible. But it also now turns for some configurations. Would you say that using stone mills lead to healthier grains? I know they do. I can watch it. I showed you. <laughs> you know it as well as I do. Uh, the grain goes in the top, goes through the stones, and it comes out. We don't lose anything, and we don't add anything. Thanks for sharing the story of how Bob's Red Mill is using ancient technology to keep their products on the cutting edge. Michael, we think that we can make a difference by sticking by the traditional way of stone milling whole grain, and that's what we're doing. You can learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Welcome back. You're listening to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sari Kamen. I've been in studio talking with my guest today, Hawa Hassan. She is the CEO and founder of Boss Boss, which is a line of authentic Somali hot sauces and chutneys. Um, so we've been talking about her incredible journey starting in Somalia and her family uh, eventually going to a refugee camp excuse me, in Kenya, and then her moving to the United States where she was raised. Um, so in Seattle, you became a fashion model at some point. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, but then, but then you, you stopped being a fashion model, I guess, and you became a food business owner. So what happened there? What made you shift gears? Um, well, I, when I started modeling, I was 16 or 17 and um, when I moved to New York, I was 19, and I think a part of me always had this big game plan, like, oh, my way out will be, I'll work for the UN, and I'll be a voice and an advocate for women who don't So you never ne saw yourself as a, as a model long-term? No, no, and I think that's <clears throat> probably a lot of the problem for me, because um, I got to a place where I was very stagnant and really unhappy, and around 2012, I started to think about, okay... I'm not going to become an advocate for the UN. Like, this isn't happening fast enough. It's not, you know, I'm not making, um, either I have to go back to school or figure out what I'm going to do. And so I, I packed up in 2014, went to Oslo, rented out my apartment, and started talking to my mom about the idea of starting a food company based on a conversation about being Somali. Because with modeling, what I always heard was, oh, where is Somalia? Oh, you guys are all so beautiful like Iman. You know, mm. there was like this one idea of what Somalia was. Mm -hmm. And it was usually based on famine, terrorism, pirates, um, all things that I didn't associate Somalia with or didn't, you know, I, I, it wasn't the end all be all for me. And so I... I needed a plan, a plan B. I went home to my mother. We came up with it. I came back to America, and I've hit the ground running, and I've been running ever since. So there's Somali sauces, but you use local ingredients to make them. How does that work? Um, so the recipe, I mean, there isn't anything here that isn't available. Mm -hmm. And the spices that we use in our red uh, tamarind date sauce, we make that in-house. Um, we source everything upstate 
and only a few items are sourced from places like Arizona and California. Um, So the idea behind the sauces was, which was really important to me, I wanted the people who made made my sauces to be women. So about five women make them um, in the Hudson Valley, and we source everything locally. Uh, We try to be as honest as possible and be as transparent as possible. Um, And... Yeah, I it, for me it was having it be women made, sourced locally, and um, that the big vision was that it was global but local. Yeah, and we're staying true to that. Yeah. What are kind of what are some of the hallmarks of like the spices and flavors of of both your sauces but like Somali cuisine in general? Ooh, we use a lot of warm spices. Like almost everything we cook with involves uh, turmeric. We also use cinnamon, like most people use cinnamon to sweeten things. We use it to make things savory. Um, we use cumin, cardamom. Uh, we, we blend ton of spices. We're on the Indian Ocean, so a lot of our flavors um, are ones that people are familiar with, but once they taste our sauces are a bit shocked because mm. the flavors seem familiar or taste familiar. And then when I explain to them the spice trade and the Indian Ocean, then they're able to piece um, their taste with the with the whole their whole idea of where things come from. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so I'm just curious, you lived in a refugee camp when you were really young. What is it like for you now as someone who has lived mostly in America to witness the anti-refugee speech coming from the White House? Jeez. Um, It's scary. Um, This has been a difficult year for so many people that I know that have family that have been waiting to come to America or people who've filed for their family or their siblings to do family reunion maybe seven, eight years. I think what a lot of people don't know is that rhetoric that is being shared by the White House, not only is it true, not only is it not true, um, but refugees get vetted for so many years before anything is possible. Hence my mom applying in 1993. 17 years. And only being approved, you know, in 2007 or whatever. And so the vetting process is extensive. Um, I think for me, what I've started to do so that I don't feel stuck is I've started to educate myself about where can I put my energy Um, Who can I align myself with? Who can I show up for? Who can I read documents for? Who can I suggest uh, different resources to? Um, Because I think what the White House is also trying to do is disfranchise people. Mm -hmm. And if you're feeling a little lost, it's because every single day there's something new coming at you. Um, So is it is it only refugees that are suffering because of the shenanigans from the White House? (laughs) No, but. You know, we got to organize. And I think that's what I've been trying to do this year is just organize and use my energy wisely. Yeah. Are you able to use, you know, your platform as an entrepreneur or, you know, use your skill set as someone who works in the food business? Um, Are you able to raise awareness about refugees because of your company or promote tolerance towards immigrants? Like, can you use food as a way to kind of educate others? I have been. I've been hosting dinners with a friend of mine named um, Ali, and we've been bringing people together once a month um, to just dismantle this this rhetoric again that's being told 
you know, from people that hold office. Um, and we've been doing it with, like, food that people aren't familiar with. And so I, I don't post a lot about that. I don't talk about that publicly, um, mainly because I, I get so much from doing the dinners, and it's not – I get back so much, and it, isn't really, it really isn't for anyone else except for the groups of people that – and we bring together different people every month, and it's just to share stories it's to share our fears and it's to figure out how much we have in common and not what we don't have in common. And we usually do that with like people who are refugees, people who are undocumented, people who are lawyers, people who work at the mayor's office. And we have an honest conversation and then we figure out who has the right resources to help out some of the people we invite to the dinners. Yeah. Um, and I know that you're your company, Boss Boss, some of the money goes back to different organizations. Like, what are some of the other causes that you're involved in? Um, so I'm really passionate about girl narratives. And so we're involved with a company called Zana Africa, and they're based in Nairobi. And what they do is they provide um, sanitary napkins and reproductive information uh, to girls who are school-aged in Kenya. I'm really, I'm excited to be helping out um, and to be involved in conversations that involve girls, because I, I really do think that a lot of what happens after a girl drops out is some of the issues that we later start confronting. And to get ahead of the ball, I think if you can keep a girl in school, educate her, you can change nations. And that's the opportunity I've been given. And I, Zana Africa has changed my life in terms of just allowing me to be involved and to share their stories. So, so every time... Boss Boss is purchased? Is there other proceeds that go there? The idea is, is that once we're big enough, that will be the case. But now I just fundraise for them. Oh, gotcha. um, and so we have to keep buying Boss Boss so that eventually that's what happens. Exactly. Okay. Well, tell yeah. us tell us where you can find Boss Boss sauces. Um, you can find it at some Whole Foods, Olive Dean and DeLuca's, online, Green Grape in Brooklyn, um, or... You just go on bestbestsauce.com and see where we are. That works. Are yeah. you are you on Instagram? Are you on Twitter? Yeah, we are on Instagram. All of our handlers are bestbestsauce. So, Great. Yeah. Well, Hawa, it was such a pleasure to speak to you. And thank you so much for being so generous and open and sharing your story. And I'm so excited to go out and taste your sauces and find out more about Somali cuisine. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I think the more we share our stories with one another, um, the better we'll be off as a country. So thank you for doing this. Thank you for oh. food has no borders. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we're here. Yes. Thank you all for listening. And as Hannah said at the top of the show, please do contribute whatever you can. Holiday season is coming up. It's Thanksgiving time. Um, it's really important for, for all the shows at Heritage to keep having these important conversations, and we are only able to do it with support from our members. So whatever you can kick over to us is greatly appreciated. We, we want to keep making you know, the best quality food radio that's out there and keep the lights on. So we won't be here next week because of Thanksgiving, so have a wonderful holiday, and we'll see you back in studio the following week. Check us out on iTunes at Stitcher at heritageradionetwork.org.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.